You're listening to Rock Solid People, a podcast by Max King. The harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. This is Rock Solid People, a podcast about amazing individuals. With me today, Sally Coddington. The description of you, Sally, on the DSC website is quite remarkable. Don't be disarmed by her humor. She packs a punch with her huge NDIS knowledge, intellect, and energy. All of these things uh, I found out about you and more having met you the once. You came down to spend a day at Oscare Support. But uh, not just that, we've, we've had a, a few interactions in the last six or eight weeks. And, and what a complex individual you are with wearing many, many hats. Thank you for joining me, Sally Coddington. Oh, thanks for having me. I was just excited when, we, when I learned that we were both born in 1973. I'm not going to let that go. I think that is exciting. <laughs> it was the expectation because, that I would have. No, mostly because I'm, I have not really enjoyed the company of boys my own age since like <laughs> way back. And when I met you right. and discovered that you were born in 1973, I thought, wow, this is like the first boy born in 1973 that I actually like. Well, I was surprised when you said to me that you were born in 73 because I thought you were much younger than I was. So oh, there we go. <laughs> and I'm glad that you've enjoyed my company as well because uh, I have to say it's, it's um, I, I just texted a, a friend of mine saying, I can't believe I'm interviewing one of the uh, the legends from the Disability Services Consulting Group, Sally Coddington. And you're, you're pulling a face there, which obviously people can't hear on the podcast. But for me to talk to someone like yourself with the the, the amount of information that, that you're, the amount of knowledge that you have on the NDS is is quite for me anyway. It's it, 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 I guess it's it's quite a journey that I've been on personally. But you've been at uh, with the NDIS since the start in Newcastle, and I was just going to touch on, mm-hmm. I, I guess what you've seen in terms of the transition. It's it's now six years, is it? So six seven six years seven years two thousand thirteen sort of mm-hmm. so seven years. Um, obviously, you know, you'd have seen some some fundamental changes and some, but. Uh, Overall, uh, what's your impression of, of not just the NDIS in Newcastle, but the NDIS itself? Mm. Oh, well, so there's a, lot, there's a lot to everything that you just said there. The first is that for the first time in my life, I can see the value in being an old-timer. Mm-hmm. And, so, and that's a little bit shocking because usually we're so disrespectful of our old-timers, aren't we? But having been there since day one has really given me the perspective of understanding how things have evolved and changed. So when I talk to people about things like transport and the current transport situation, I'm able to tell the story of of why and how we've gotten there. And I don't think I've ever felt like I I had a grasp on something so intuitively before. So I'm really enjoying that. I've really been working the NDIS probably for five, six years, but I've been living in it for seven years with Nikki, with my daughter Nikki. Mm -hmm. The reality is that back in the trial site, we were living the NDIS dream. I mean, none of those issues around scheme sustainability we're at the forefront yet none of none of that so we really saw it at its best and since then we've really seen the compromises that come with it being an insurance scheme and all of those kinds of things so I have really mixed feelings about the NDIS now but I also I also believe that we have a role to play in shaping it so I'm not just going to sit and whinge about it. I'll actually get active about making it work. So that's that's what I do, and I absolutely love it. It's I think I said to you in the you want this to be short, sharp. You don't want this to be Sally soliloquy. No, no. Sorry. No, no, no. I, I want this to be long, long, and yeah, and and, and, com- and comprehensive. Oh, well, in that case, let me go for it. <laughs> So, so I've got a question for you on, yeah, on that. So, because for me, you, you know, obviously, you both have personal and you've professional experience of, oh. of the NDS from from a very early start. Me, I'm not. I don't have that personal involvement before 2015 when we got accredited, but then we really didn't start till 2017. And my view is that most of the people that we come across, particularly the support coordination part of our business are fundamentally better off under the NDIS than they were previously. Now, I I don't have comprehensive statistics to back that up. That's really more my gut feel on it. But yet, when I just asked you the question there, you you, you say that there's been compromises. Mm. 
and, and yes, you're not sitting around waiting for those compromises to just you know just be be part of the the landscape. What 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 are those compromises that you feel are currently you know being being pushed onto the NDIS? As you say, it's an insurance scheme, and what can we do about them? Mm. So they're insidious and they're all over the place. So, you know, things like, let's take that, the most recent example with the independent assessments. Yep. That has obviously caused a lot of issues. And the reason why it's caused a lot of issues is that people don't fully trust the implementation or the use of it. So we know that people have found it very expensive to test their eligibility because they've had to go away and they've had to get all their assessments done and all of those sorts of things. But at least they knew that they were working with professionals that knew them and they had some control over the information that they were collecting and presenting. So what the NDIA has done now, and this is going to be controversial, there's going to be people who are shaking their head at me right now, and that's totally fine. I'm okay with that. So much of this is is grey and subjective. My opinion is that the NDIA is positioning it as, we're doing you a favour. You told us how expensive it was to get these assessments done. Now we're going to pay for those assessments to be done for you. But what they're failing to really point out to those who don't know the NDIS very well is that they're talking about allocating three, four hours with a completely new allied health practitioner who's never met you before. And the three, four hours is actually probably only going to be one hour of face-to-face and three hours of writing up the report. Usually people's lives are so much more complex than that that you will never fully capture the complexity of the person's life and the impact of their disability on their life in an independent assessment that works like that. So I guess the mistrust is that, oh, we know that you're you're making it out as though you're doing us a favour, but we mm-hmm. actually know yeah. that the reason why you're doing it is because you will have more control out of uh, over the impact or the outcome of those assessments. And, and we, the, the, the elephant in the NDIS room is scheme sustainability. So, you know, you read the legislation, it talks about choice and control and all of those things, but, but littered through is this caveat, so long as it's financially sustainable, so long as it's financially mm-hmm. sustainable. And so it is an insurance scheme. Like we, we can never forget that. It's entirely about investing now to reduce the lifetime cost. And I get, guess those two goals, choice and control, supporting people to live ordinary lives and financial sustainability are at loggerheads with each other. Anyway, and so, so in a situation like that, where, yeah. No, in a situation like that where you have an independent assessor who doesn't know uh, the individual that's being assessed, yeah, is the solution to to have the independent assessor to be someone who's familiar with the individual? So to, to flip that around and make it something is that is that part of the pathway for independent assessors, or is that now they're saying you have to be qualified to be an independent assessor, yeah. and not everyone's going to do that? So therefore, the, the the risk is that you have to go and then find someone else who doesn't know you as an individual or your child. Or you'll get allocated someone. So, and I, and I think I, like I, that was a bad example to start with. I mean, it was a good example, but it was a bad example because it's it's evolving. That situation is evolving. But like, I'll give you another example of the insidious kind of compromise: is that we know that contemporary disability practice and just the human rights of people with disability is that they make decisions about their own lives and that regardless of the impact of their disability on their decision-making capacity, they get the support that they need to make decisions about their own lives. So it's called self-determination, you know, and supported decision-making is what we use to to support people's self-determination. And the NDIS Act talks a lot about choice and control and people making decisions about their own lives, but the implementation of the NDIS has actually left a lot of room for other people to make decisions for people with disabilities. And so, like, things like that, that, you know, we had this real opportunity when we launched the NDIS to do it right from day one, and yet we've kind of brought with us a lot of the heritage of low expectations, that we just shouldn't have done that, yeah. Yeah. And, and what I was shocked the other day when I realised that the 
amount of money going to the top providers was significant. So the idea of this concept of individualized funding, but yet the top 10 or top 20 organizations that provide disability support are getting the lion's share of funding that, are, that, that exists, you know, 90% in some cases of some channels, which to me, again, speaks volumes about the, the some of the inherent flaws of the system if if an individualized system was supposed to reduce that or remove that that the capacity of those large organizations to dominate and i know that when i was involved with dia and we were trying to organize a uh, a conference some pressure group that sort of put a stop to it and i was surprised that there was the, i think it was the there's a the group of 20 or the, uh, the you know oh, yeah. and it was it, it was it was quite so shocking to me to be involved in something like that that was fundamentally against what I thought was the the the, 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 fun, the fundamental theory of the NDIS being individualized funding and, and individualized support and personal self personalized plans I was thinking that the uh, you know I was surprised at the at the oh. the volume of funding going to the top providers and oh. I think that to me is something that again speaks about the challenges to transform uh, an inherently uh, system that's skewed towards those those organizations but yet at the same time we're all working in that to try and I guess have have that effect in the long run to try and break that I guess that hegemony of those individual those those organizations I mean I was looking for I guess for your comment and your thoughts on on what whether that's a, a good thing that there's continued support from those organizations or whether whether there is a, a challenge that we can put up and, and whether there will we, there will be an opportunity to break that in the future mm. So there's so there's a lot in what you're saying because there's there's also other statistics. So there's statistics around the proportion of people that have support coordination and another service from the same provider. And I think that all of these statistics are actually related to each other. And so the, what really worries me about the statistics that show the huge proportion of funds going to a very small group of very large providers is what we consider to be a captured client. So a captured client in brackets inverted commas, is a client who has all of their services delivered by a single provider. And the real danger, you know, I put my business hat on and I'm like, good for you guys, you've done it, wallet share and all the rest, you know. But I put my mum hat on and I'm terrified because we know for a fact that people who are captured clients are at significantly higher risk of abuse and neglect than those that have a variety of providers. And so there's so much in what you say. I think that ultimately market change is going to come from the customer end of things. And so I'm really interested in stimulating demand for smaller niche providers. That's, that's my, my preference and I think that that's, but that's a long game. But, but ultimately, I mean, the, the ultimate goal would be that people actually employ their own support workers. They become their own provider. And there's mm. this whole untapped opportunity in supporting people to become their own provider. So, yeah, I could talk about that one topic for but uh, I mean, in your own experience, and I, I was listening to the podcast that you did with Roland and Evie, you described your supports for Nikki and uh, those individuals. Byron Bay Abbey is the name that rings out to me. You obviously have the capacity to have de developed the team to support yourself and Nikki. There are challenges to, to, in that. And you said that, you know, that you had up on the board the, the number of days since somebody didn't turn up for a shift or didn't turn up for a service. And that was, you know, not often in double digits or you know, wow. very, very rare. In, into into the sort of months, which is what your expectation is. What what can be done to change that? I mean, again, this is your professional hat or not your mum hat. What what can be done to change that side of the business that we are in? You mean the reliability of reliability? Yeah, uh, the give a shit factor, really. And so the biggest one of the biggest mistakes we make is in putting together support workers and people and assuming that a, a meaningful relationship will ensue. And I would say that I probably said it in the podcast as well that, you know, the, one of the reasons I attribute the reliability of Nikki's staff from the reasons I attribute it to is that they loved her, that they would not have let her down. And I use the word love, is you know, broadly. They cared for her. They wanted the best for her. They knew and they appreciated that if they didn't turn up, 
that would put Nikki's well-being in in jeopardy and they didn't want to do that to her. I think that the biggest failure is when we still have, I might just call them a random, some random turns up at your house to give you personal yeah. care. Of course I'm, you know, I'm, no, I'm, I, it's not that everyone doesn't give a shit, but it, it's, a, you, I, it's easier for me to do a no-show for someone that I don't know or don't care about than it is a no-show for someone that I've actually got an invested relationship in. <laughs> I thought there was going to be a, a follow-up to you that know, point. I was going to tell you about my podcast and then I was like, oh, that would be a bit. I'd love to hear about your podcast. I was actually, I thought that you and uh, a colleague from DSC were doing a podcast. I, I Googled it. I couldn't find it. I thought maybe I misheard that. But um, if, if it is out there, Sally, you need to get onto your marketing team a bit better I because I couldn't smart. find I it. It's the same as yours in that it's in the, it's in the process. In the infancy. So I have so six episodes that I have recorded of a podcast called Love at the Frontline which is all about how you, it's all about what are those relationships, what does contemporary support relationship look like and how do you curate it? And it's from the perspective of support workers, from the perspective of people and also from the perspective of CEOs about how you create that connection at the front line and how you use it. You use it as an antidote to abuse and neglect and for so many people, that is ironic because they think that those relationships lead to abuse and neglect. Do you know the, what I mean? Uh, sorry, just explain that to me again. So, so you think that the irony is there because people believe the relationships, a close relationship is, is more engendered and more skewed towards abuse and neglect rather than, than love yeah. and care. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. People, So people think when they think keeping people safe they think rules, procedures, policy, boundaries, and I would argue that there's a little bit of that, but that just comes with being a good person. But the real safety comes in, I actually care about you. Actually, you know, I want the best for you. Hmm. Yeah. 100%. Is there a launch date for your podcast? No. Is there a launch date for yours? I've said 1st of November. Have <laughs> you? production manager. <laughs> I have a feeling I might be a side gig. Yeah, well, that's that's fair enough. Um, yeah, well, I, I'd love to hear that because I think one of the things that struck myself, and, and as I say, my my history in this in this space is is, is not as deep as, as yours. But one of the things that struck me is how do we continue to care for those individuals who entrust us with whatever it is that we do, whether it's even plan management, which is a very sort of hands off, arms length financial intermediary transactionary a, a relationship how do we continue to maintain those levels and standards and and you know that that to me is where what when i first came across you sally and that we have entertained the idea of trying to empower our teams and create this autonomy amongst them that they can go above and beyond and they can care they can develop a more i guess more personal relationship with the people that they're supporting and then there's the risk of overstepping and the risk of balance boundaries and you know where, where does where does where does the line in the sand lie that we can create more care but le and less abuse but without overstepping the mark and for me it's a challenge that we we deal with on, on, a, on an almost daily basis oh. um so i'll be keen to hear your podcast when it, when it does if it does come when it comes out it's happening it's not making any promises and I was when I was googling with you as well. I saw that Curb Cut Effect uh, was your marketing business, and mm -hmm. I wanted to touch on that because part of the reason that I'm undertaking the exercise with teams, and I've, I've been unapologetic about this, is that we are a commercial organisation, and that we would love to be more successful because we think what we're delivering and bringing to the disability space is, is good. Um, is Curb Cut Effect? Uh, well, can you tell us what Curb Cut Effect is to start with, and then is it still in, in existence? I, I, and, uh, and if so, what uh, what tips do we have from a marketing perspective for the disability sector? Well, I now do most of my marketing work through DSC, but but I am a contractor. So Curb Cut Effect is back there, but it's not really marketing itself, ironically. For me, Curb Cut Effect was my stepping stone out of corporate land. It was my way of saying, I now have the courage to try something that I don't know if it's going to work. There is no salary involved in this and I'm grateful for it for that reason. 
So it got me out of the nine to five, bringing together my passions. Because I'm, I'm also a business person. I love business. You know, if we can make disability supports viable and lucrative and really good, obviously that's the priority, then that's, yeah. that's the ultimate. So, but the whole idea behind Curb Cut Effect was mostly about inclusion more than anything else. So I love that sometimes I teach at the University of Newcastle and one of the things that we, we teach about is reverse innovation and I love the idea of reverse innovation. It's like an example would be where we had an, there was a need for defibrillators in rural and remote areas of India. And so they designed a defibrillator to go to, you know, the most remote areas of India and then realised, holy shit, we have this amazing defibrillator that we can now have in every RSL in Australia. And so, like, to me, that's reverse innovation. And I think the same is true when we think about, like, those peripheral markets like disability markets which ironically is not peripheral at all 20% of Australians have disability but when we design for the people at the edges we actually end up with innovation that is better for everybody and so that's what a curb cut is a curb cut the the curb cut comes back from California in the 70s where they um, started allowing finally students with disability to come to the university, but they couldn't get from their hostels or where they were living to the uni. So on the pathways between them, they created these little curb cuts so that they could get down. And then what they realised that these things are awesome. Like who doesn't love a curb cut? Strollers, trolleys, you know, anything. And so the whole idea is about reverse innovation. And that's that's what excites me about it. And, uh, and and also one of the other hats that you wear is the Centre for University Design. Yeah, I have, actually, I, I need to take that off my thing. I haven't been involved right. in that for a while. But I wanted to give them my support. So I continue. Okay. This is really what you're talk, touching on in terms of the yeah. design and the reverse innovation. Yeah, that's that right. That seems to... Sorry, I'm getting an echo. So that seems to to be something that benefits the greater majority by by designing, as you say, for the outers. Yeah. I was recently just looking at the buzzers that you push when you try and cross the roads and uh, looking at yes. someone who was actually aware of the uh, crosswalk because of the, the beeping of the buzzer. And again, just that, just uh, the, the cause and effect that, you know, someone else had some benefit from something that was designed not for him. Mm. but. One one of the you know one of the things it says there is provocative design, and I was wondering if there was something that you had in mind that you thought would be a, a, a useful something that was that you haven't seen that you think that would be a useful design, a provocative design. Mm, where did you see provocative design? That was on the universe center for you for oh, universal okay. design. It's okay. it. Uh, okay. What could that be? What do you well, think of provocative design? So provocative design yeah. makes us think. It makes us think. Uh, No, my question was more around something that you thought might be a useful design that you haven't seen in effect at the moment. Mm. You mean you want me to innovate on the fly? (laughs) Well, I didn't think it would be on the fly. I thought it would be something that you you had thought there would be some some capacity for or some need for that you hadn't. I I wanted to touch then, I guess, if that's not something you're innovating on the fly, I wanted to touch on um, what you mentioned in terms of the visualisations that you you went through and that produced the fundamental shift in you. Yeah. It was a bit of a storyboard effect. Can you run us through uh, what it was that you had uh, visualised? Who hasn't read Think and Grow Rich? Have you read it? Uh, I have read it. A long time ago. Yeah. A long time ago. Yeah, yeah. What's that? A long time ago. Yeah. I read it and got very excited about it. And started playing around with ideas of it. I think what was really helpful to me was I, so so what we haven't said is that uh, I have three daughters and one of my daughters, Nikki, born with a disability and then had an accident at the age of four and then became profoundly disabled and then died in 2018. So after Nikki had an accident and became profoundly disabled, I went through a bit of a period of time where, and this is very un-me, my locus of control was not inside. It, I felt like I had, I was lacking control. And so when I read that book, 
I realized that, or it just reminded me that, you know, don't, don't give up on being able to control your destiny. And so I had this, this interesting kind of, you know, when things come together at one particular point in time. And, and the example that I gave in the email that I sent you was I went to a charity golf day and I I won two prizes, two random prizes that you would think, oh, okay, life coaching, professional portrait. And I had just read Think and Grow Rich. And it was so interesting how those three things just caused me to have a slight shift in thinking where I thought, what have I been doing all of these years? Like, Sally, you know you're powerful. Like, get get back and on the program. So having the professional images were <laughs> fantastic. They were fantastic then. The problem is that some people still use them today. And when and this is like 10 years ago, right? No, maybe not. Maybe seven years ago. People look at me and they go, oh, you look a bit different. I'm like, oh, yeah, it is time to update the professional photos. But that put a face out there, right? So that put a face out there that I could then say, yes, that's me. That professional photo is me. The, the personal coaching, the life coaching was amazing because it was a, it was kind of a, a really gave me some skills around self-control, not that I'm particularly good at that, but um, self-control and the whole visualization thing as well. So going back to your original question was like, what, what was it that I visualized? I actually did a storyboard. I actually did a storyboard and on it, it, I had my perfect job. So I had my professional picture. So I wanted a professional image. I had a picture of a person standing in front of a room full of people talking about things that they were passionate about. I had a picture of an airplane going like, so there was going to be travel in my job. I had a picture of a bunch of minds coming together. So like really, really clever people that I would be part of a group of. I had this one random picture of this brightly colored woman dancing. So I was looking for a job where I could I could travel, I could be my professional self, but I could also be like 100% me, you know, because because prof- professional land can be very stilting. And about two weeks after I pulled that together, I saw so Roland Norfolk from uh, DSC. He put an article on LinkedIn, and I sent him an email and said, uh, "I want to work with you guys." And by two o'clock that afternoon, I was working with DSC. So it's just. And that's just one example. So the thing is that when you define goals, when you def- when you can have a clear vision of what it is that you want in life, it's not magic. It's not like it magically appears or manifests. Yeah. But what happens is you start seeing pathways to get there and your, your awareness of opportunities that might get you there opens up and you start taking steps. And so I love that Steve Jobs quote that's all about, you know, the dots in your life and you don't, you don't know where you're going to. You can only look back and see the dots that have got you there, but that you have to have faith that if you keep taking steps and you've got a clear vision of where it is that you're going, that you will get there and you can get there fucking quickly too. Well, and it's interesting you say that. I mean, I'm curious about the trigger that actually made you reach out to Roland. I think you said you'd seen a number of different articles that day, presumably from some smart minds and from like-minded individuals, but Roland's triggered something in you and you took the step to reach out to him. Was it, was it literally just a, and what I'm really curious about is, was it just a hello, I, I liked what you, what you just wrote, written or was it, a, I'd love to work for you? Is it, what, what, or was it a, you know, was it a compliment on the article? What, what, what did you, do you remember what you reached out to? Um, and the reason I'm asking is because I really think that that's the step that often stymies a lot of people's taking that next step. Yeah. For me, it's not an issue. I, I have no problem with that. I reached out to a gentleman who's just set up a hedge fund in Adelaide for health, used to run IBM Watson health program. So, you know, I'm like, you know, I just reached out to him. He responded to me at 10 o'clock last night. Thanks, Max. And it was my, my reach out was just a compliment on him on, on setting this up. And I hope our paths will cross in the future. So for me, it's an issue. But I'm curious as to what you did that re- reached out that, that triggered that with the, to then start working for DSC. So, and, and, and we don't work for DSC. What we do is we work with DSC. Yeah. So DSC, I mean, DSC is us, right? So 
which is which is part of what I love about DSC as well. So I, I don't feel like I work for anyone, which is really yeah, no good apologies. for them as well. No, no, don't don't be apologetic. It's true. It's like a fucking blessing not to work for someone. But it was literally a LinkedIn message that just said, read your article, I loved it, would really like to work with you guys. And he responded within half an hour and literally by the end of the day I was working with DSA. <laughs> mm, yeah. No, I, I, I mean, I, I think it's, uh, you know, it, it is literally that little trigger of information. Obviously there's some connectivity and there's, there's, some, there's some value in, in what you were bringing to DSC as well. That then triggered the, the pathway. So then you started with DSC. Obviously, the DSC, as you say, is a consulting group providing a lot of training. And you have now delivered how many support coordination training courses? And I've trained over 5,000. I stopped counting at 5,000. That was several years ago. So. Oh, really? Oh. Several years ago? No, several. So like three years. Is three several? A couple. Yes. And so, so my question then is, what, what are the characteristics that you think make up the best support coordinators? Oh, gosh, where do I start in pulling apart that? I think some self-awareness is really important. I think one of the challenges with disability services and support coordination is it attracts people who need to be needed. And the reality of support coordination is that you need to be a person who can build a person's capacity so that they're actually not, you no longer needed. So often teachers make really great support coordinators because they're used to like, I will, I will give you everything I've got this year. And at the end of the year, you won't need me anymore. And that's, that's a bit of a paradigm shift for disability services. Ironically, I would say, uh, not ironically, but the reason I use the word ironically is because people would probably say, well, that's a bit of a lower order criteria. I actually think it's really, really core, like maturity and self-awareness. The next thing is you've got to be a creative thinker and you've got to be someone that inherently says not no or yes, but says how. So when somebody comes to you and says, I want to do this, you don't go, oh, I don't think so. You're more likely to say, okay, well, how are we going to, how, what does it, what's it going to take? Someone who realizes that in themselves, they're not everything that a person needs, that, that their job is not to fix the person, but their job is to connect them beyond them. So, and someone who is open-minded enough to appreciate that the people you support might have totally different priorities to you. And it's actually not about you. It's about them and what's important to them and helping them to, yeah, so those, some of those things. And then there's the other stuff that's important, right? So then there's the, you know, being able to being good with numbers, being good with words, being good with phone calls, being good with being organised and all of those kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting you say that teachers, I, I've never really put that that hat on that, yeah, to, to, to give them everything they need and then let them go on their way would be a really very useful skill set. And so, Sally, what's the future for support coordination? What does that look like? So, I, well, I'm really optimistic about the future for support coordination. I mean, let's go back to what I was saying before about there are so many elements of the NGOS that haven't been, that we've compromised on. I am determined to define a future for support coordination because I think that it's the single most important, potentially the single most important function in the NDIS. So, you know, way back in the very beginning of the NDIS, nobody had any clue what support coordination was about. And part of the work that we did at DSC was we just started training in support coordination and over the time we really learned what good practice support coordination looks like. So I think we've been quite involved in shaping it and I would continue to do that. So I think there is a future for support coordination. I think that it will become more specialised and it will be for people who have specific complexities in their life, so a lot less general support coordination. But I think that, yeah, there's, the, I reckon if you want the specifics, I think about 30% of people will get support coordination. And I think the average support coordination package will be about 24 hours. 
Okay, it wasn't specifics I was looking for. It was much more about that, the, the sort of that that I guess looking into the crystal ball and, and and the overlap with the psychosocial recovery coaches. We as an internal organisation that provides support coordination have had some challenges looking at the lay of the land as to how the two uh, interact, overlap, uh, are exclusive. Yeah. What, what's your What's your take on on the psychosocial recovery coach and the pathways that we're going to see in the future? So I, I'm not an I'm not an expert in the psychosocial recovery coach, and I but I do I just this morning. So I'm running a workshop at ten thirty, and just this morning I added some slides about psychosocial recovery coach because I think it is important to understand how the two interact. The expectation is that a person won't get both, and so they'll get one or the other, and that it will obviously be people with psychosocial disability who will get psychosocial recovery coach. I think that there's a bit of confusion around the role of a psychosocial recovery coach, though, because it seems to be support coordination plus, and yet exactly. it's paid significantly lower. So it, it is confusing. I think I think what we do know, we have to stick with what we do know and then ask what do people need. What we do know is that people will be funded for either support coordination or psychosocial recovery coach in most cases and if a person has psychosocial disability they're probably going to be funded for psychosocial recovery coach in which case this is the budget per hour that we've got to spend and the question that we need, need then need to ask is what do people need for that hour and how can we make it viable as a business and the only way I can think that it would work would be to have junior support coordinators with a lived experience of psychosocial disability providing the service. I can't think of any other way that you would make it work. Can you? Well, no, we as an internal working group uh, did a review of uh, the requirements to become a psychosocial recovery coach and the fundamental, the economics around it. And uh, we put it into the, we continue to want to provide the service, but we can't see a financial solution for us at this stage. And to put someone into it that who is a junior support coordinator with lived experience, who has the professional development and the supervision makes it a very, very complex for us as an organization to navigate what's required to continue to have, to have them and, and also to provide some some valuable coaching. That's you know that's ultimately what it's designed for. It is designed for some some coaching. So we we at the moment are keen to explore it, but don't currently see a pathway that is is viable. But um, you know it could be that that things change in the future. So we'll we'll watch this space. The overlap is as I say, we've only seen one client with that, and they got both their plan. So we we don't know where that's going to going to go as well. I'm going to just shift on to plan management because I know that you're also keenly interested in, and I think you're also an expert in this. Obviously, we also think plan management has a fundamental role. It's a, it's a, we, we, we love what we do in the plan management space, despite the fact that it's got quite an arm's length with most of our clients. We don't have a particularly close personal relationship with them. We do, we do love it when plan management goes well and goes smoothly. We, we know that there's only uh, well, approximately 30%, I think it is, of 30% of the clients have that. And still, again, large, dom largely dominated by some large players in, in the industry. And I, I was just keen to understand, I guess, you, your thoughts on where that's going, self-management versus plan management, or why we still have individuals who are agency managed and whether you think there's a, a future for that as well. Mm, yeah, it's interesting. I think that plan management will continue to evolve to be really, really similar to self-management, except with the paid support. So, which, which is interesting because people who self-manage their funds can purchase that paid support anyway. I think that's often really um, misunderstood is that people are allowed to use some of their core supports to purchase like a bookkeeper and someone to help with recruitment and all of those kinds of things. So we plan manage Nikki's funds and I would have moved to self-management had she not died. That would have been the, the, the journey that we were taking. But even that the fundamental difference being being able to work with non-registered providers makes a huge amount of difference. It really, really does, particularly around that things like low-cost assistive technology and things about like getting cleaners in the house and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I think, yeah, I, I, I think that one of the reasons why the NDIA will want people to move towards plan management is because it's outsourcing all of that administrative work that they do at a fixed cost 
you know. So if you mm-hmm. think about it from their perspective, it's it's great. I think that the reality is that there will always be some people who don't have the leadership in their support network to be able to plan manage or self-manage because like you said it's you're still very hands-off so somebody's got to be taking leadership in that person's coordination of supports and so I think that that's probably where agency managed will end up being but I think that this is one of those evolving areas I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes. Mind if I just pick up on something you just said there so you were plan managed with Nikki and you would have moved to self-management as a, as a provider of plan management services, I'm keen to understand, you know, what, what would be the benefit for you and why would you have made that decision to have shifted? Because from, from my perspective, you get all of the benefits from plan management with less of the administrative burden for you in terms of time and processing. And, and the net effect is that you have more, more on your plate if you're self-managed. But I'm keen to understand, obviously, that not wasn't part of your uh, thought process. What's, what's the, what, what is the thought process behind changing well, there's two, there's two aspects to it. There's the logistical benefits of self-managing and there's the, the philosophical control over your own funds side of things. So focusing on the logistical benefits, I was very lucky at the time to be working with a plan manager who has now transitioned out of plan management, who allowed me to make all of my own decisions about what invoices I did and didn't pay. You know, and and that's a benefit of self-management is that you're only accountable to yourself for the invoices that you pay or you don't pay. And I think that plan managers themselves are a barrier to good plan management because so many of them are risk averse. You know, they're accountants and bookkeepers. They're risk averse. Their biggest concern is not facilitating choice and control their biggest concern is what's going to happen if I get audited and the NDIA decides I process a payment that's not reasonable necessary that is such a huge barrier like that's such a huge barrier just to that's why I would self-manage so I could I didn't have to justify my expenditure to somebody I didn't know in some office somewhere else 100%. 100%. And I'm curious, what is the consequence if the NDI come and say you've paid an invoice on behalf of a participant who's told you to pay an invoice that we don't consider to be 100% reasonable and necessary? And I, don't, I know that there are, there's a grey area. What's the, what's, you know, what are the nuances around that? But what is the consequence? Because I don't know. Well, firstly, firstly I think plan, man, plan managers need to understand the boundaries of what they are legislatively able to do and not do. So, for example, the NDIS Act says that only the NDIA and its delegates have the authority to determine reasonable necessary. So plan managers need to realise, I don't have the authority to determine reasonable and necessary. I can be a cowboy and I can go and decide I'm going to, you know, start applying reasonable and necessary, but legislatively I don't have the authority. So... That, if, if they understood that, then they would have the confidence to say to the NDIA, I don't have the authority to reason, determine reasonable and necessary. Don't hold me accountable for having a different interpretation from you. So one of the things that the NDIA is really good at is managing stories in the media. So there's this, or rumours, right? So there's this, this, what do you call like a, it's not an old wives tale, it'd be more like a... A fable? fable there's this fable of all these plan managers that had to pay back invoices that were determined to be not be reasonable and necessary I was speaking recently with someone who used to work with probably Australia's largest plan manager in you know an executive role and she said never ever have we had to pay back an invoice I think there's this fear that has been and it works for the NDIA for plan managers to be afraid of it so they kind of perpetuate the story but the reality is that plan managers aren't held accountable unless it's fraud right and that's quite distinct it's a different, different story yeah. yeah so plan managers aren't held accountable but we're also nervous because we've heard the fable we've heard the story and we're like well yes but I heard it from someone on Facebook well it must be true then but the reality is that it's probably more of a story than it is reality Mm. so there's a couple of things there firstly plan managers 
need to support people to make their own decisions, but they do need to cover their butt to a certain degree. So what we use instead is a checklist that's in the participant booklet three. We use that checklist, and I think I showed it to you, didn't I? We use that checklist, and then we add that to our case notes as, you know, supported Sally to make her own decision. And then if the NGIA comes back to the plan manager and says, you processed a payment that was not reasonable necessary, the plan manager says, I didn't have the authority to determine reasonable and necessary. My job is to support people to make their own decisions. And here's what Sally said using the checklist that you made available. So I think the plan managers just need to develop a little bit more confidence and not be so afraid of the NDIA. Mm. You know? Uh, look, hundred percent. We, we've had we've had a lot of we've had a lot of. Well, I hundred percent agree. I mean, I have this the challenge with the team because they get a lot of threats from people to they have to pay invoices or they don't have to pay or they'll be they'll be taking legal action against them if they don't pay invoices. There's sort of all sorts of you know, veiled threats, which I and I, I guess we are constantly navigating that pathway as to what our team should should be confident to do and confident to respond to to not just to participants but to to their support teams as well um i'm going to quickly touch on gyst 2021 stuff together get, well i thought it was get your shit together but it's actually get yeah. your strategy together i think it yeah. was was it meant to be get, get anyway no, june 2021 it was absolutely meant to be shit but it's the same strategy, but everybody knows it's DSE. Yeah, and June 2021, very confident putting it out there for the middle of next year for us to all be together. I know that you don't have a crystal ball with regards to COVID, and I, I don't particularly want to talk about COVID because I, I think there's been enough said in the press all the time. We're quite excited to 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 to, to have that already that future a part of uh, you know. To, to be able to plan to be there with, with DSC or to certainly to attend. What is the, the strategy for the NDIS going into, into next year with regards to how they deal with, with, and I will mention the COVID, what is the strategy that we should, we should all be looking at from an internal and external perspective? I actually think, but see, this is, this is me. I'm very silver lining kind of person. So I actually think that we've learned a lot from COVID and what we now need to do is consolidate those learnings and ask ourselves what we need to be doing differently. And I think that one of the things, I had a great conversation with an executive from a provider in, the, in West Australia and he was reflecting on how so many service providers when COVID hit just retracted supports kind of said, we can no longer offer you what we were offering you, so we're going to offer you nothing. And in what, in fact, what they should have been saying is, how can we be of use to you now? Like, what can we do for you now? And I think that that, that comes back to two things. It comes back to the old mindset, which was programs. We deliver programs. And if our programs, for whatever reason, COVID, can no longer be delivered, we have nothing. And I think that's the program thinking. The other thinking is the worrying too much about what the NDIA thinks and not appreciating that they're just a funding body. So don't worry about what the NDIA thinks. Worry now about what the person needs and the fact that they've got this funding. And so I think that I think maybe the strategy going forward needs to be more focused on the person and what they need and how we can be of service to them and less focused on our services and products and what we do and what we offer you know and it's and it's the cliche is to be person-centered but I think that most providers don't even really know what person-centered means they don't even they don't even realize it that you know anytime you have a program that is kind of an off-the-shelf program you've lost sight of the person at the centre. I think there's a lot of lip service being paid to person-centric planning and, as you say, it's just nuances and tweaks around an off-the-shelf delivery of services. Mm. So I think, I think to answer your question, I think that the, the strategy going forward needs to be asking each individual one at a time, what is it that you need from us? And then delivering that. And I think that 
We've been having lots of conversations around self-managing teams, autonomy in the team. And I think that that's the best model for delivering that kind of service because programs require a whole bunch of infrastructure behind them to support them. But one at a time supports can be a lot more bespoke at the front line. Uh, look, I, I think if we can, if if we can try and, uh, as you say, continue to deliver that on, on a on a more bespoke basis, that that then then we then we'll be ahead of where we have been, as you say, in terms of that that uh, uh, you know off the shelf to 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 really start to, to to I guess to come to fruition on that individualized and tailored program. And we have the we have this. I think the funding is there. I think the, the the software is there. It's just whether the people take the I guess take the leap of faith to start to deliver those and and go through as you did OBS with teaching support coordination courses. You learn along the way. And it may not be perfect first time, but you start to, to work work towards a journey. A little bit like we're doing with our teams, you know, I guess project and teams challenge. It's, it's not a, we don't know where we're going and we're going to go down a few dead ends, I'm sure, before we get there. Sally, I'm conscious of time, so I'm going to wrap up quite soon. There's one more thing. I just want to put, mm-hmm. I, want to, yep. I want to follow up on something you just said. So you sure. just used the phrase leap of faith. And I think that that's a really, really interesting way of being strategic so going back to your, your strategy uh, strategy conversation and the idea of a leap of faith is that, you know, from, for many of us who've come from very robust commercial backgrounds, we're used to having five-year plans with implementation schedules and Gantt charts and bringing consultants and all of that. And I think what we're learning now is that in order to be as nimble as we need to be, We do need to take that leap of faith. And then going back to that quote by Steve Jobs about, you know, it's one step at a time and that it actually won't make sense until you look back and go, wow, that's, and yet we still try to define all the steps to the destination and that's not what's going to work. 100%. In the conversations I had with the team about psychosocial recovery coaches, the bottom line was that most people were saying we can't find a financially viable model for us. And my view was we'll work it out. Mm. Now, that's obviously easier said than done in some cases. And but, but yeah, that was that was my view. We can find something that's going to make this viable that provides a solution for our clients or new clients who need that. And I think we can do it well and better than most other organizations because we're committed to delivering a, a you know an exemplary service and 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 to see where that goes so that was to me we haven't made it yet but uh, that's that's sort of in the background that's bubbling away with myself in terms of what i believe we can do we can deliver thank you sally collington for all of your uh, knowledge wisdom thank you for taking the time to catch up with me I've really enjoyed our chat. I hope you have too. I'm looking forward to hearing your podcast. Uh, do you want to give us a, a little plug for it just at the end? Love at. You've got to listen to it. It's awesome. Love at a disability podcast by Sally Collington. And there's a, a partner you have. Who else is with you? No, just me. Just you. Yes. My apologies, Sally. I thought there was. Uh, I thought you were doing it with someone else. So Sally Collington from Disability Services Consulting. Thank you very much. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Rock Solid People. For more interviews, stay tuned.